You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil. That experience, a Korean barbecue, if you've never had one, you know, when they put this like barbecue in the middle of the table and you grill the meat, you say, ah, that's, you know, when you're growing up on the north side of Dublin, you couldn't even dream of these things happening. That's Philip O'Connor, my first guest on Expat Lives, who lives in Stockholm, Sweden, for over 20 years. This is the first interview in a new series called Expat Lives, where I interview Irish expats about their lives abroad and who offer insider travel tips. We discuss life as an immigrant and their opinions in Ireland looking from afar. Expat Lives will feature people like Annie Kennedy, I'm working for Formula One and Shell in Africa, John Carey, ex-deputy CEO of ACNOC in the UAE, Brendan Dwyer, the GM of Spain's number one golf resort La Finca, and journalist Richard Fitzpatrick in Barcelona, to name just a few. For details, follow me on Instagram at Travel Tales with Fergal. My first guest is Philip O'Connor. He's a journalist, and fans of the Stan podcast will know him for his Swedish COVID reports. Hi, Philip. You're very welcome to the podcast. You're my very first guest on Expat Lives. You're an Irish journalist living in Sweden, in Stockholm, and people know you from Swedish COVID reports that you do on the Stan podcast. So now when I think of Sweden, I think of COVID response. Bozo, I have to ask you, the first question is, how are things there at the moment with COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like asking somebody in the middle of a war, what's going on, you know? It's um, it's kind of like the rest of the world. We're speaking now towards the end of October in 2020. You know, a year ago, we'd never heard of this thing you know there hadn't been a case or that kind of thing there was no we didn't know what mitigation strategy was social distancing i used to describe it as a synonym for living in sweden you know but at the moment it's kind of going like everywhere else Fergal. so uh, the curves are pointing in the wrong direction again uh, there's an increase in the number of cases people are being taken into intensive care again so things are changing and it's one of those things that you know i mean i think when we pull back and we look at this in five or ten or fifteen years time and we look at the lessons that covid is teaching us because that's not really what we're learning at the moment we're too busy telling the world what we think we should be doing and we're not listening to what nature and what this disease is telling us that we have to do and then when it does tell us these things we're going no well, we don't want to do that so it's actually one of these great mirrors that it's holding up to who we are at this stage in the early 21st century what we value what we're prepared to do not least for one another as communities and to see the way different communities around the world from Taiwan to Tullamore to see how they are changing their behaviour uh, in terms of what it is they value and that's the fascinating part Sweden is still going down the same road i can't really see any change i mean they're talking about sort of you know local lockdown so in places like Uppsala, which is maybe 70 kilometers north of stockholm and there's slightly more stringent restrictions at the moment the same thing down in the south in malmo now this week they've said that they're not allowed to travel across the bridge the orison bridge into denmark which is you know that's one of those main sort of commuter routes loads of people live in malmo they work in copenhagen uh, so that's out the window now again that happened before the danes closed their border so but it is you know it really is teaching us an awful lot about ourselves and at the moment, I'm not really sure that all of those things are painting us in a brilliant light as human beings in our modern communities. Before you came on, I was doing a little bit of research and it's quite amazing because literally half the articles are completely pro the policy and half the articles are completely anti. For example, Time magazine you know, had a graph saying that there were number five in the debt rates per 100,000. 
So I'm confused. But, see, this is a real hard thing, Fergal, about trying to explain the COVID mitigation strategy to the world, right? Because when we look at it, we're not looking at the same thing, right? So making comparisons across borders is very, very difficult. So wh- what are you comparing there? The death rate. Okay, the death rate is what it is. And that's pretty much the same in, in every country, death rate per thousand. It's a very blunt instrument, okay? What we need to be doing is looking at these things over time. And what does the death rate tell us really? You know, because I mean, in certain, like if you had a, a village of 100 people and 50 percent of them were over 80 well then naturally more people are going to die there's a lot of old people in sweden here so you know if you take a very young country you know back in the days when i was growing up ireland was a young country maybe it's not so anymore so these comparisons are very hard to make the way we decide how many people have gotten sick because like in sweden they record every death of anybody who has had a positive covid test in the previous i think it's three months that's put down to covid so even if they die of cancer, even if they die of you know brain hemorrhage, whatever, it's just, okay, that's COVID. So we put them in there. Now, that doesn't account for the fact that Sweden's uh, death rate is 10 times higher than its neighbours. But what the Swedes would say is, come back to me in a year, come back to me in two years, come back to me in five years, and let's see where everybody is then. I don't think that the other Nordic countries or that any other country in the world is going to close the gap to them. I do think that there was catastrophic mistakes made in terms of elderly care here and i'm just like at the moment that's what i'm working on i'm trying to find out how did this go so badly wrong and you know when it comes time to reporting that there's some shocking shocking stuff going to come out about that but again you know it's how you compare these things i think what the swedes were thinking about all along and what most countries are thinking about is um what are we doing in terms of not allowing the health service to be overrun okay so as you know every disease everything can be dealt with as long as you don't allow the health service to crash and that's what their thing has been all along it has never been about saving as many or letting people live as long as possible that has never been and that may sound callous to say it but we're dealing with science here we're not dealing with human beings we're not dealing with you know some sort of airy fairy notion that oh you know everybody should live out their days you know like you know old yellow the dog on a farm kind of thing you know that's not what we're dealing with here we're dealing with public health professionals who see death as a part of life they see it as a part of their job and it's an inevitable part of it and when you're making policies based on science as distinct from being based on feelings well then naturally you're going to have a huge divergence and i honestly don't think that in certain situations that we're ready for that and if we pull back the lens even further we look at the reporting most of it's trash, right? Because most of the people who are doing the reporting have never been here. They've looked at a bunch of statistics and they've called two academics in opposite ends of the country and they go, oh, this, if this, and then that, and this person says this, and this person says that. And then they draw a conclusion that they essentially have no right to make. They just go, okay, well, this confirms what I thought when I started doing the report. And I've spoken to reporters myself They've called me up and oh, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And you can tell when they're fishing, they have an angle. And what they want you to do is prove their thesis. And I've no interest in proving anybody's thesis, right? I will believe absolutely anything if you can prove it to me, if you can put the evidence in front of me. So even if I have an angle when I want to tell a story as a journalist, I'm not precious about that. The angle is not sacred. What's sacred is the truth that you find. And that's so many people are just going, okay, you know, not necessarily, I don't believe this thing where people go, oh, if I write this, I get loads of clicks, right? But I do believe in confirmation bias. I do believe in the idea that we go out there looking to tell stories that reinforce what we already think about them. And I'm permanently second guessing myself because I know who I am politically and personally. I know the things that I value. And I'm permanently second guessing myself to ensure that that doesn't infect the kind of reporting that I do. Now, every story you choose to report on is a personal choice. That personal choice is based on your own, you know, collected personal experiences, your morals, the way you see the world, right? 
So all of those things are already in there. I can't check, like, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. I was talking to uh, Sean, the man who directed the Unquiet Graves documentary there recently, and he was saying there's no such thing as unbiased reporting. Everybody has their bias that they bring to things. But the important thing is to be aware of it and to take it into account when doing that reporting. And nobody does that when they come to Sweden. Uh, it comes, like, it's a blank canvas, and everybody goes, I'm just projecting what I think about Sweden on this. It could be, you know, blonde-haired people and pornography. It could be, you know, sort of hard, crisp bread and Ikea. It could be whatever. And so little of it, you know, this is the thing that, you know, it's so hard to get across the depth and the complexity of a nation in, you know, even if it's 3,000 words for Time magazine, you know, and a lot of them, to be honest, Frank, I read the first and 100 words and I know pretty quickly if they have any idea what they're talking about or not. And that's not to say that I disagree. To be honest, and I still don't know what I think of the situation here. I honestly don't know. If you were to ask me, do you think Sweden is right or wrong? I'll talk to you for an hour and I still won't give you an answer, a satisfactory answer, because I don't know. So anybody present this thing to you as well. Did the Swedes get it wrong? You don't know that. Don't even ask the question. It's not relevant at this point, you know? So anybody coming out with any of these definitive answers, you know, run a mile from it. But again, and you know, in Sweden itself, it's the, it's the opposite. People go, no, we did it right. We made mistakes, but we did it right. I go, you don't know that either, you know? So I think... Again, if we go back to the lessons that COVID can teach us, I think the main one, the, the main two are humility and community. They are the two things that are going to get us through this is being humble in the face of something we do not understand, being able to say, I don't know, being able to say, I don't understand that, being able to say, uh, these facts contradict me. I have to reconsider my position. And that has happened a lot in the academic community so far. And the other thing is community is, okay, what can I do that's best for us? Not what can I do that's best for Fergal or what can I do that's best for me? But what can I do that's best for us? And they are actually some of the hardest things to do as a human being is to say what I know is wrong and how I feel is wrong. I have to put my own feelings aside because there's a greater good here. And do you think that the response is a reflection of the personality of Sweden? You know, if a country has a personality. Yeah, I think, think? There's, there's always been, you see, Sweden is very, very complex. It's, it's like saying that you know a person, you know, if, if we look at somebody like, you know, take Eamon Dunphy from the, the podcast, The Stand. Eamon is a very complex individual, but we can always distill it down to Eamon throwing the pen across the studio when talking about the Egypt match all those years ago. And that can be something that defines Eamon. I know Eamon. That is not Eamon, right? That is just one tiny facet of his personality expressed in one gesture. And Sweden is the same. There are so many statistics that you can pick out, so many things that you can talk about, right? So you can talk about it being, you know, this multicultural hellhole, right? Because, you know, ghettos and inverted commas and all this kind of thing, you know? And you can also talk about the fact that, you know, they took in, Sweden took in 163,000 refugees in 2015, refugees and asylum seekers when, you know, Afghanistan was falling apart, Syria was falling apart. And that shows a huge generosity of spirit. That shows what the prime minister then called that Sweden was a humanitarian superpower. Four years later, they are doing their absolute best not to let anyone in. Okay, so this is the the difference that, you know, again, if we only look at certain places at certain times, it's like the thing that I feel that, you know, in some way I'm a brand ambassador for Ireland. When I go around the world talking about, oh, you're from Ireland, tell me about this, tell me about that. And people have things, whether it be, you know, U2 or whether it be Irish whiskey or whether it be Conor McGregor and the good, the bad and the indifferent of all of those things and more that I feel that I have to explain to them, not just the breadth of what Irish culture has to offer, but also the depth of that. Because, like you know, Conor McGregor is a huge 
hugely controversial person and character, brilliant athlete with some terrible opinions and who has done some absolutely awful things. So you can't just sort of hold up somebody like Connor or like Eamon Dunphy. You can't just hold up ABBA or IKEA either and say, this is Sweden and this is what it means. So to a certain extent, if you're going to give a picture of any country, of any nation's response, you really owe it to yourself and to your readers, your viewers, your listeners to sit down and really consider it. Uh, Consider where this is, what it comes from, why? Why is the most important question in journalism? And unfortunately, in the era of, you know, articles getting shorter and shorter, it's the one that you have less and less time for answer to, to answer. And my point in, in journalism and broadcasting now is, I don't want to be part of the 240 character thing. And I do, I do it a lot on Twitter. Everybody knows me for Twitter being out there, you know, and I'm, you know, going in studs up on absolutely everybody left, right and center. And it can be done, right? But what I really want, Fred, is I want that depth. I want to know why, you know, the what, exactly. interesting, the when, inter- the why is the most important thing, because the why is where the learning is. If you understand why something happens, then you can make a decision about whether or not you want to happen in the, in the future, how you shape that future. How, how long are you actually living in Sweden? How long are you there? I am here, I think it's 21 years now. So the 8th of June, 1999, I moved here with a big old grey suitcase that fell apart as soon as I got here. So uh, I think that was a message to say, you're not going anywhere soon, you know, so uh, it kind of, you know, uh, when I came over here first, it was kind of, um, it was weird because, you know, I don't know, one of the questions you were sort of asking me off air there was, you know, what's it like moving to a new country? And I don't know if it's any different no matter where you go, because everywhere is different. You know, anything that's not Ireland is not Ireland. And learning a new language, learning a new culture, because it is very, very complex, as we were saying before. You can't say that people are this way or people are that way. Some people are this way and some people are that way. And they do have norms and, and they do have ways of behaving in society. Like, you know, for instance, uh, all the off licenses in Sweden are state owned and they close at, uh, I think they close at three o'clock on a Saturday, you know. So I marvel at it, you know, when we're playing a bit of Gaelic football in town or whatever on a Saturday, we might be playing a soccer match or whatever. And all the young lads have just arrived over now at this time of the year and they're starting their Erasmus year. They might be doing research at the Karolinski Institute and they're playing like, ah, oh, lads, we're we going for a few cans later. Should we can go buy a supermarket? Uh, no, you can't, right? So, and you also, you have to get down there by three o'clock and there's also, there's no fridges there, right? So what they don't want to do is they don't want to encourage the sort of the, the quick consumption, the instant consumption of alcohol. We can go buy a bottle of white wine, it's already chilled, or a six pack of beers or a tray of beers, whatever. So they don't do that. They make it as difficult as possible to enjoy the experience because it's one of those things that they said, okay, uh, this was back in the time of prohibition in the, in the US and they were going, okay, well, we either do this or we have to ban alcohol altogether because people don't behave themselves. And back then, they don't have, or they didn't have a pub or or cafe drinking culture, people drank what they call Brenvin, which is like a, the literal translation would be burning wines, like vodka, stuff made out of potatoes, right? And when they drank it, boy, Jesus, they drank it, you know? And it caused huge problems in societies, huge problems with domestic violence, huge problems with, you know, men in particular spending whatever money they had on Brenvin at the time. And that was a problem, you know, from this sort of Lutheran country, which didn't like, you know, people drinking to excess. So this was the solution to it. And, and indeed, they actually brought in a ration book at one point, maybe a hundred years ago, there's a ration book that exists and unless you worked, you weren't actually allowed to buy this stuff. So that's one of those hugely culturally different things from Ireland. People go, oh, how can you possibly do that? You know? And then, of course, there's the tax situation. You know? Now, Swedes pay kind of as much tax as what you would do in Ireland. The difference being that Swedes get something for it. And then they have expectations that they're going to get something, you know, public services. Now, gradually, since about the beginning of the 1990s, 91, 92, 93 there, these systems have been eroded in Sweden. And it's now getting to the stage where, you know, private health insurance is not a thing here, but it will become that because, you know, sort of neoliberal forces are sort of insisting that this happens. Dentistry is already out there. Uh, you can run a school for profit here, which you literally can't in any other country in the world. 
it was too right wing an idea for Pinochet's Chile. So you know, <laughs> and they allowed that. So these are the kind of things that people don't actually know about Sweden. But and it takes an awful lot of getting used to on a social level, on a personal level, on a state and structural level. But to this day, I still don't understand the school system here because I didn't go through it. So my kids will tell me, "Oh, I'm in ninth year in school." So I have fucking no idea what that is. You know, are you doing <laughs> yeah. your junior cert? And yeah. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the classroom is set up. I know that they call their teachers by their first name, and you and I would have been battered out the <laughs> door if we did that with you know some yeah. a Christian brother. You might you know, but that was it. <laughs> and you know, so all of those things are different. So you know, in terms of settling in, but I think the difference is your own attitude. So when I moved here, I was kind of done with Ireland. I really felt that the person I was in Ireland was not who I wanted to be. And that I needed to move away. And any emigrant listening to this, or many emigrants listening to this, are going to recognize that. Um, it, when I left school in 1989, the choice for people in Ireland was pretty much, okay, you either emigrate, you go on the dole, or you find some job that basically wasn't worth your time. You couldn't, you didn't have anything left over for creativity. You didn't have anything left over to be yourself. You just went into this slog, or you went to live in Kilburn, or you went to live in Boston. And I don't know what it was. I tried to sort of, you know, to stay down to plug away for like 10 years after that. And I was never happy because I was never really achieving what I wanted to achieve. I didn't feel that the person that I had become and the person I was known as in Ireland, I was known as a sort of a bit of a chancer, a person who couldn't concentrate on one thing long enough to make a success of it. And I figured, Jesus, I have to get away from that. So I met a girl in, in Ireland in 1994. And she was, you know, she knew long before I did how unhappy I was in that situation. And you plug away, you have your mates and you have, you know, you can go watch a football match on the telly, you can go to Crow Park, you can go to Daily Mount and Parnell Park. So it's not a bad existence by any means, but something was sort of non in me. And I always had that desire to sort of see the world. And I was never afraid of, of going to places. I was probably afraid. It was probably a fearful of, you know, the unknown when you get to any particular city. That's a fucking healthy thing, it has to be said. But I sort of figured, okay, I can probably do this. You know, I was arrogant enough and dumb enough, you know, just that, you know, just that nice bland, a little sort of mix of, you know, arrogance and stupidity that makes you think you can actually do this, you know. Mm. And I came over here and it took a long time. I mean, I was uh, like, obviously, I came over here thinking I speak English, so I can get a job writing here. I used to write a lot about soccer and music back in the day. I thought, oh, no bother. You know, I speak English. The Swedes speak better English than what I do. So I'll get a job doing this. <laughs> no <laughs> chance, you know. So you come in over here and you have to have a sort of certificate or a degree or something like that. I had none of that. I just had a spoofer's talent for talking my way into places. So it almost wound up in 2001 that I ended up, uh, I got. I was offered a, a contract writing for a football website that had the former England manager Sven Joran Eriksson. He was there sort of, you know, party piece. But then um, the, this was before, like the internet was only really kicking off then and the funding fell out. Then he got the England job and that was pretty much the end of that story so it took me like I went in I started I did an IT course and I got into a big news agency here in 2002 and gradually I made the slide over then for the IT department into the editorial department so that was 18 years ago when I walked through the door there I left them after about eight years ago uh, eight years of being staffed there and then I went freelancing because it just gave me that freedom you know like I say I just I, I wanted to see different parts of the world I wanted to do different things and being stuck on a desk or being stuck just reporting about one thing or doing one thing in one city that was never really my thing so they offered me the chance to take over sport for for this news agency and it was a freelance job and they said okay so i went out the front door on a friday afternoon and i came back in the back door on a monday and i've pretty much been there ever since and working for everybody else as well you know so yeah do you know being an expat living in a country say for 20 years what uh, do you feel irish still as an irish like an irish person living in sweden or do you feel like part of the country now or how does that work i've never lived in the country so long 
Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those huge sort of debates. It's a philosophical discussion you have with yourself the whole time, right? So my wife is Swedish. She was born and raised here. She went to school here, lived in Ireland for a few years and then moved back. And when we, you know, when we moved over here first, she was the one who had had a lot of experience, a lot of experience of being abroad. I wasn't. But now I fairly eclipse her with my 21 years, you know, as she <laughs> usually says, if I'd have killed her, I'd be out by now kind of thing, you know. <laughs> my, my children are born and raised here, but they're raised bilingual. So I only ever spoke English to them and my wife only ever spoke Swedish. And indeed, the older girl is now in Ireland. Irish now of Duolingo and her Irish is starting to put me to shame. I used to speak fluent Irish when I went to school but of course that's long gone that was replaced by the Swedish so it's one of those discussions that I've had with myself over a long time is who am I now you know in what way have I changed and they always said to me would you not get a Swedish passport you know because you know when you're traveling as well sometimes the Irish passport is good sometimes the Swedish passport is better and for many years I was saying you know well why am I I don't feel Swedish in that way you know I don't I understand that I'm a part of this country and this country is a part of me, but I don't know, we're brought up in a way and with sort of a closeness to our history that a lot of countries don't have. I think a lot of former colonies have that sort of closeness to their history just because of the pain of it, because it takes, you know, so long to work that away and that sense of inferiority, that the sense of pride of what you have and what you do hold, which is that harp on the passport, becomes very important to you. And I remember, Fergal, when my children were born, uh, they were born in 2004 and 2006, that I felt that I had a legacy, like I had a legacy to pass on to them. So I wanted them to grow up in a foreign country, uh, like in a foreign country, it's foreign to me, not to them, but that they would grow up sort of immersed in this culture, but they wouldn't be alienated from the Irish culture. And, you know, to be honest, the, the books that I read and the music that I listen to and the sport that I watch is all to do with Ireland. I mean, Gaelic football has been a part of them. They've been standing on the side of a Gaelic football pitch. We started the Stockholm Gales in 2009, which is 10 years ago. So my eldest would have been five or six at that point, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so, so you know, th- this has always been a part of it, meeting up with people. There's a, a wonderful woman called Lisa Bruton who's from out the Navin Road direction. She has a Christmas party every year, herself and her husband, who's Swedish. And, you know, it's literally, you know, sitting around for six hours playing guitars and fiddles and banjos and going through tunes. And, you know, the odd Republican tune is thrown in there. But it's mostly just, you know, Molly Malone here, there and everywhere. You know, the Ferryman, uh, the Fields of Athenry. All these things are part of And it's not this four-hour-ish, finger-in-the-ear Boston thing. Like, this is people who grew up on the north side of Dublin in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So there's just as likely to be an Aslan song in there or a U2 song in there as there is to have a Dubliner song in there. But one thing which I was careful with in, in being part of all these things, Fergal, is when younger people than me come over here, I don't want this to be Little Ireland. I don't want this to be a sort of an outpost for them where they can come in and be handed a cup of Barry's tea and have an arm put around their shoulder. No, this is a safety net. For when you need to feel the way that you feel in your GA club at home or in your mother on your mother's couch, this is where you come. Would you go out there and you take every experience this country has to offer and you be part of it and you contribute to it? And you know, if you can learn the language, it's not for everybody, not everybody can do that, but be part of something outside of this as well. So and the great thing about the Stockholm Gales, the Gaelic football club that we have here in Stockholm is like, if you look at the girls' team, half of them are Swedes, at least. There's a Spanish girl, former basketball player, playing the midfield. There's a Swedish girl, uh, Julia Shelson. She scored a goal in the last second of the 2019 championship to win it for us. And she'd never played a game before until she came to us about five or six years ago, you know. And these are the things that, you know, it's not an insular thing at all. It's not this thing of, oh, we're having a St. Patrick's Day parade and we're going to choose who could be. No, get in there. This is something we want to share with you. It's not something we want to hold for ourselves. And it's also something that you're not going to be hemmed in or penned in by this is an expression of your Irishness but it's up to you to decide and to express who you are within that and to contribute and change that as you see fit 
I've talked to a few people now who are friends as well, like who are involved with GA in Seville and in Holland and in the UAE. And you, you describe it perfectly. It's a community coming together. Irish people now, you know, what are much more modern. You know, one of the reasons why they go away is, is actually to experience new places. But the GA seems to provide a great connection to Ireland, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And, for, you know, to be honest, Farrell, I had issues in the beginning because the GA in itself can be quite a conservative organisation, as we well know. But I have to give, I have to hand it to them. They've been really, really good. In the beginning, they didn't really understand. They, they knew they wanted us to play abroad, absolutely, but they wanted to have full control. I remember six, seven, eight years ago, because, you know, obviously I work in broadcasting. I was going, I want to stream games. And they wrote back to me and said, okay, well, then you're going to have to have 100,000 euros of liability, public liability insurance. I was going, lads, you don't get it, right? I can do this now on Instagram or Facebook and nobody mentioned these things anymore. But to be fair to them in, in Dublin and Crow Park, they sat down and they listened and it took a long time to convince them of the benefit of this. And the other thing that we've had to change as well, Fergal, is the way we see it. We see the games as being something Irish, right? And I know they are like intrinsically, but I've always said that the future of these games on a global level is with people whose names we don't yet know. And we cannot dictate that future to them and say, this is our torch, carry it forward, right? We have to take into account the fact that they have different experiences. They have to, they may never want to hear Elrond Naveen or turn themselves towards a tricolor before, you know, a tournament final in Malmo. That, that just doesn't do anything for them. So, you know, we might have those aspects of it, of the games for ourselves, but it doesn't say anything or do anything to them. One of the fastest growing and, and most healthy regions in the GEA is in Brittany and France. There isn't an English speaker among them. You know, when wow. we have, you know, Congress, they have their own local governing body because it's part, of, they saw it as part of the Celtic cultural tradition and they adopted the game. And now, you know, I meet French speakers who are referees and they come to tournaments in Stockholm. And it's a huge thing. The same thing in Galicia and Spain. The same thing with the Asian games. The Asian games is huge. And it's only now, really, Michal Murahertig still goes out on occasion to commentate on them. I think one of his sons played out there, wow. you know. It's massive. The woman who started the women's section of the Gales, when we were setting it up, we thought only of the men to begin with. A Swede contacted me and she said, you're setting up a women's team. And I said, okay, if we're doing that, you're doing it with me and you're on the committee. Anna Rungord was her name. And she had taken up Gaelic football playing for the Shanghai Sirens in China, you know. So we have to sort of, you know... We can't just look back to, you know, Hayes Hotel and we can't just go back to that and say, this is what the GA is. It's not that anymore. It is lads who've never set foot in Ireland who are playing for New York and Boston and for Shanghai and in the United Arab Emirates who are playing seven aside, nine aside, variations of the game you've never seen before. And again, it comes back to questioning who we are when we go abroad. What's important to us? How can we, because we think it's important to tell people about Irish music, about Irish politics, about 800 years of British rule. But maybe they're not interested in that. Maybe that doesn't say anything to them. Can we say something to them with music? Can we do it with food? Can we do it with sport? Can we do it with a sense of community in the United Arab Emirates when 20 clubs arrive to play, you know, a day's Gaelic football in the blistering heat there in January? You know, can we do the same thing in, you know, in Malaysia? Can we do it in Stockholm? You know, and it's in, in studying those things and say, okay, who are we and how do we tell that to the world? Because that's essentially what we want to say to people as Irish communities abroad. We want to say, this is who we are. We want to be part of you. This is who we are. This is what we have to offer. And essentially, as long as we're saying that and we're finding ways to, to say that that appeals to other people, then I think it's a very, very positive thing. You know, when you see, and it's very unfortunate to see people these days wrapping themselves in the, pla- in the flag and say that we're Irish and nobody else can be Irish. That to me is nonsense. That's, you know, like I'm all for an inclusive version of Irishness and Swedishness. If this is what we are and you're welcome to be part of it too, you're welcome to bring to it what you can and to take, to, take from it what you need. And as long as we can do that, I think it's going to be very positive for Irish communities yeah. around the globe. 
like I often say to tourists, you know, if coming to Ireland or if I'm going to a match and I see a tourist and they ask me where are you going to, to always go to it. If in Ireland, go to a hurling match, particularly um, if you really want to see Ireland, like it's it's one of the best things you could possibly do, isn't it? There's, a, there's a fella here, oh, geez, there's a fella here called Pella Bloom, right? You see all these lads going playing soccer in China now, right? Pella was one of the first Westerners. He went over to Dalian Wanda in 1996 and he played over there. I think he's probably still living on the money. He won't thank me for saying that, but he had a huge <laughs> interest in Irish culture. Like, you know, he he had sort of dropped U2 before the rest of us realized that Bono could be a bit of a pain in the backside. You know? <laughs> so, you know, so he was buying these U2 records in this little town called Earlbro, which is two hours west of Stockholm, you know. And when I met him first, he was talking to me about Irish music, and I was amazed that he had heard of bands that that I knew in the 80s, you know, coming up. And I brought him, and we've been to Ireland several times. We've been to Northern Ireland. We've been around Derry and Belfast and the Titanic Museum. One of the first things I did was I brought him to the All-Ireland Hurling Final when Tipperary beat Kilkenny. What year was that? Was it 2010 or 2011? It was basically the first time Kilkenny had lost in a long time. And oh, two was minutes 10, in, yeah. 2010, yeah. yeah. So basically, he was, after we were sitting in the canal end, I refused to call it anything else. It's the canal end, right? So we're sitting there watching the match. And about two minutes in, he's holding my arm, right? He's sitting on my right-hand side, and he grabs my right arm, and he says, where am I supposed to be looking? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, the ball is flying around the place. It travels 100 yards in a couple of seconds. There's a fella there baiting the head off somebody else. There's a fella getting treatment over the far side. He says, I don't know what I'm looking at. And I said, just <laughs> relax. Just look where everybody else is looking and listen. Because, you know, you'll hear the roar of the crowd as it goes. Exactly. And he had a brilliant time. And since then, you know, uh, he's been on GEA Go. He became a Tipperary fan that day. He loves an underdog. He was an underdog himself. As a now, this man won the league playing in China. You know, like he's, when he goes to China now, thousands of people still turn out of the airport and there's nothing he prefers than being in Crow Park because I brought him to see Ireland play in Italy and rugby and that kind of thing as well when we were there. Uh, and he's seen a bit of Gaelic football, but hurling was his thing. And he's seen, now he's been over there and he's seen hurlies being made. And that's just one of those things that appeal to him. And it's amazing what it says to the spirit and to the soul of a small town Swedish man that this thing could sort of grab his interest so much, you know. Yeah. And I really do think that it's a very strong thing because it's not just the sport that happens on the pitch, Fergal. It's everything around it. Like, there's nothing. I used to live in, um, I was born and raised and lived in Dunny Kearney. And then I lived and went to school in Marino. So when I was an adult, I lived in Marino, but I went to school there as a young fella. And walking from Phillipsburg Avenue, where I lived in Marino in Dublin 3, down to Crow Park on a Sunday. I mean, when you talk about things that you miss uh aside from family back home who i haven't seen in a long time now because of covid that's the one thing you know i still miss getting annoyed with people coming from offaly and leitrim and leash and roscommon for their one day out a year in crow park and blocking my driveway on phillipsburg avenue right i will forgive my country brethren for that right but you know that, that you go jesus there they are again and me walking down just to watch whatever game was on there, that's me you know, so. <laughs> yeah it was probably you, yeah. you know, fair enough, so. and i never never once called the police never once had anybody told about but that's the kind of thing because when you're walking along, I don't know what it is. I, I, my father used to take me to matches from the time I was very young. We used to watch uh, the Dubs playing down at Parnell Park. We go down there watch to watch them training, and it's walking down the road. You know, the closer you get to a ground, the more people you're you're walking along with, and you fall into conversations with people as you're queuing to hand over your ticket, as you're queuing to but you know to buy a can of coke or whatever it happens to be, and you end up talking to people. That might be the only exchange you have with them, and they're in your life. There's, oh, I hear Dermot Connolly's doing well in Boston. Just that will set off a conversation. And, you know, it, it, you don't have that. As we mentioned earlier on about COVID in Sweden, you don't have that sort of sense of openness really in society here. Like, you know, I lived in an apartment building at one point and, you know, there's like four doors there and we had the door in the corner and in the middle of it was where you drop your garbage down and fell down into, you know, the garbage collector in the cellar. And if you went out to drop your garbage and your neighbour was going out at the same time, that was a major social thing. Like, they'd close their door and they'd go in so that they didn't have to talk to you in the stairwell. And so th if you contrast that then with a the walk up to Crow Park or, or Park, Parnell Park or Case, wherever it happens to be, 
that to me is the sense of Irish community, how easy it is for us to, to find something in common with one another. You know, Brendan Bean used to write fantastically about this. You know, that every Irish man has a story and he's only dying to tell you, you know, and everybody has an opinion on everything. You know, if you go into the pubs around Crow Park, for instance, Jesus, there's fellas there now, you know, the, what they, in America they call them Monday morning quarterbacks. If you go into any <laughs> of the pubs, you know, Gaffney's there, there's a lot of fellas that'll tell you what you should have been doing a full forward for Dublin on the Sunday, you know, so it's with that sense of community, you know, but now we have that a little bit more abroad because we have the GA. Where do you go on holidays in Sweden? Yeah, I mean, recently, just this is absolutely mad, right? So the last few years, um, I do a lot of travel with work. So, you know, I've been all over the place. But when you come home, I want to do one of two things. I either don't want to see anybody apart from my family or I want to go for two weeks in Croatia or somewhere cheap in the sun, right? And sit down there and just eat meat straight off the barbecue and just leave it at that, right? But my wife has always had this idea. They have, in Sweden, they call them summer stuga. It's basically a little summer cottage, right? Now, when you think of that, you're thinking of the Irish Times property supplement and something that costs like, you know, 170, 200,000 euros above in Fanon and Donegal. Fabulous places, right? What we ended up doing was we bought a place for 37,000 euros with no water and ridiculous carry-on. So that has become the thing. But that area of Sweden, which is two hours sort of northwest of where we live in Stockholm there, it's only two hours away. There's a beautiful lake. It's like glass in the summer. Uh, it's close enough, you know, it's 20 minutes to, you know, it's maybe an hour to the nearest Ikea, which is the best way, you know. In Ireland, we describe everything about like distances around pubs, but here we do it around Ikeas, you know. It's a small town. It's a small mining town. It has a cafe that has been there for over 100 years. Just this beautiful little place it's a little town called Norbay but anywhere out in the Stockholm archipelago is absolutely beautiful so Stockholm is basically 10,000 islands you wouldn't know what to look at it but you'll see it if ever you fly into Orlando usually to fly out over the Baltic Sea and then they sort of turn left or west as the pilots will tell you and you will see all these thousands of tiny islands and I've been to a lot of them because I, I've actually, there's a sport called swim run where you run in your wetsuit and you swim in your jogging shoes. And it was created by four fellows who made a bet in a bar one night. And now it's this global sport where it happens all over the world. And the fine, or like the, the world championship race every year, it's called Earth to Earth. And it's, it takes place uh, on the first Monday in September. Now, it didn't take place this year because of COVID. But it starts in a place called Sandham. And it goes on for 75 kilometers and finishes up in a place called Uta. And it's basically, you know, you go from one island to the next. So you jump into the water, you swim to the next island, you run across that island, you jump in the water. And it's the most amazing endurance sport you'll ever see. And because I, w- I was the commentator on that for probably six years, I got to visit loads of these places. There's these beautiful little islands. Uh, the playwright August Trinbay used to have one of them. Ingmar Beim and the film director actually lived on one of them for most of his life. Um, and all that up, sort of up that coast, you know, for three or four hours up the coast from Stockholm to places like um, to, to Sundsvall, you'll have these sort of small little islands. Now, they thin out a little bit after the Åland Islands, which are towards Finland. But those islands, those archipelagos are absolutely beautiful, especially in the summertime. I have a friend who two months ago was over in Sweden. He went into Stockholm and it went up about two hours and he uh, was hiking up there. So it was yeah. amazing. Yeah, but that's the, the little town where we bought that little place. I never thought of it, never heard of it. You know, my wife had heard of this place, but there is like, a, there's a hiking trail that passes right through there, you know, and she was going, oh, hiking, hiking. Now, I'm like, I don't know whether I have ADHD or what it happens to be. Like, hiking is not really my thing, right? You know, either going absolutely bonkers, traveling somewhere or sitting down and doing absolutely nothing. That's my thing right there, Fred, you know, but she's got, okay, let's do it. And we just walked, you know, it was only about a half a kilometer of it. And it's amazing. You know, when you're walking along, beside these lakes these water features these rocks when you're walking in the, in the footsteps of people you know because we, this little place that we got now is right on the outskirts of the village and some miner lived there it's a tiny little place some miner lived there with his family in two tiny little bedrooms you know and people sort of huddled together for warmth because you wouldn't have had the rock wool and the isolation that we have in modern buildings there and they had a sort of a, one of those 
uh, stoves, a wood-burning stove in the kitchen, and that was kept going all winter. They used to get up in the middle of the night to keep it going just to keep the heat in the place, you know. But when you're wandering around these hiking trails and that, it's just – and, you know, for – I used to say, I'm a dub, right? I was born, you know, half an hour's walk from O'Connell Street. I'm allergic to not being able to smell concrete and fumes, you know? <laughs> and to get me in that situation and to have me going, Jesus, this is not so bad. I never thought it would happen. But those hiking trails, and the further up you go, as you go into the mountains of Sweden, the mountains that go between um, Sweden and Norway, for instance, it's incredible. Actually, on the subject of extreme sports, in the neighboring country of Norway there, uh, there's an extreme triathlon called the Norseman. And I get you get loads of listeners going, uh, can he get me onto the Norseman if they realize that I know the guys who run it? Because I commentated on that as well. But that's another one. Like in Norway, they actually have these little cabins. Uh, like there's no heating or anything else like that. But you can stop there on your travels. It doesn't cost anything. You just go in and you're happy. You say, I want this cabin for the night and you book it and away you go, you know? And it's just it's just a place to put your sleeping bag. And you can wander across this place, uh, Hardanga Villa, uh, you know? And it's just, I don't know, the Ice Age did amazing things to the landscape here. So when the ice sheets started to recede, they really ripped the country asunder and they left, you know, rivers and they left gorges and they left fjords on the Norwegian coast. And it's just, it really is breathtaking. And, you know, you really can, you could wander along here for ages. Maybe it's the place where you have your summer house, but is there a hidden gem that you'd recommend then? Yeah, no, that, that place, I, I, I'm absolutely not going to recommend that because I don't want all you paddies arriving <laughs> in on top of me. You go, here, stick yeah. the kettle on, we brought the tea yeah. bags, you know? Exactly. So no, it is beautiful. That part of of, um, of Stockholm, uh, so there's a river there called Dala Elven, the Dala River, and anywhere around that is absolutely beautiful. Uh, but if you come into the city centre and get on a boat, right, that's really where, I think going out in the archipelago is one of those things that really is a game changer. When you go out uh, to Uta, to Santam, to, you know, Oh no, these absolutely beautiful places because these, all these islands again, they were created by the ice sheets receding, right? So 10,000 of them. And it's just, you know, they could be just rocky outcrops. An awful lot of them are uninhabitable and, you know, you just couldn't build anything there. An awful lot of them are very creative in terms of how they deal with sewerage, how they deal with water, you know, how they actually get drinking water onto the island. So, and they are quite accessible. You can hire little cabins there. You know, they're not the cheapest thing in the world, but there's something about being on a little island there that's still so close to a city, you know, maybe. 40 minutes by boat away there was one time when i was um i was commentating on that race and you know i'd be right at the finish line in Uta, and uh, it's like that's the hotel where the bet was made to start this whole sport essentially but i had to get off the island and there's a taxi the taxi costs you like 120 euros but in you know in 40 45 minutes they'll bring you to the mainland and it's another 20 30 minutes into the city center from there and depending on where you get the boat you can get there from different places and i love that idea because we we come from an island we live on an island but we're not a very maritime people we don't see the sea as something that we rule over in fact we're mostly afraid of it you know so to, to see people on the Aran islands for example that's an entirely different audience to most of the irish people that you're talking to people who live in those islands those inhabited islands off the irish coast know exactly what i'm talking about but for the most part we don't experience that so if you're going to get absolutely everything i would suggest going to a place like that or i'd suggest going as far up the north as you possibly can right to you know torn it all under somewhere like that and seeing if you can see the northern lights because the amazing thing about sweden is that you know there's just it's such a long country it's such a huge country geographically that there's so much to see you know and it's definitely worth sort of coming out here you know, the characters of the cities are different. Stockholm is very different to, to Gothenburg. Gothenburg is very much a seafaring city. Uh, like from Gothenburg, it was next stop Scotland. And after that was America. Uh, and, you know, we always say, oh, you know, everybody smells of fish in Gothenburg because it was such a huge fishing town, you know. And then they have this attitude towards people from, from Stockholm. Malmo was once a part of the Danish kingdom. So, you know, they're the half Danes that still, you know, want to secede. And their, their county of Skåne wants to be part or independent or part of that, you know. So everywhere has different characters. Malmo is a beautiful city, you know, and it has this sort of, 
hipster quarter there called Mullavangan, which is really cool. Like, you know, it's one of those places where I know a lot of gay people who live there. I know a lot of immigrant people who live there and they own run businesses there. And it's, it's a real, I don't know, it'd be kind of like Rathmines was when we were growing up, you know, that's, you know, where students go and people go there because it's cheap to live and they can get their education and then they move on to other parts of Sweden. So to be honest, Sweden is full of hidden gems and I actually feel bad and I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me by various different people <laughs> for not saying their particular town, you know, but I definitely. I know, yeah. I know. Um, it's definitely on my list. Um, you know what? When I'm talking to you, what really comes out is your love of travel. And, you know, have you always had that? Did you, you know, from a young age? Yeah. And, you know, I often find that, you know, it sounds negative when I talk about Ireland, the fact that I always wanted to leave it. You know, <laughs> like, that's really not what I meant. I think what a lot of Irish like, people are like that, actually, you know. Yeah. And, and it's not that I love it any less, Fergal. It's just that it's yeah. one of those places where certain people doesn't suit. Right. And it just doesn't suit somebody like me. But I remember being a kid. And I was always like, you know, I was very lucky in that my parents were working class people, but they saw the value of reading and education very early. So my elder brother, Alan, he's 13 months older than me, and they insisted that we read. And it, they didn't have to try too hard, A, because there wasn't a whole lot of competition. You know, if you couldn't be outside in the wintertime, reading was the way you went. And I remember two things. One was that a cousin of my father's, Mary Ford, she, a lot of my father's family in the 50s and 60s, they would have moved to America. There'd be a lot of them around Boston, uh, down in Florida. My mother's family too. Every Irish family has people all over America. But Mary went to New York and she ended up as being as some sort of an editor at the New Yorker magazine. And she came back to visit in the late 70s and she brought this huge poster, which essentially was a cartoon of New York with the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty and all these things. On it. And that was put up in my bedroom. And I always wanted to see that for myself. So the, I can still see like the poster now. The poster is looking up Broadway and all these buildings in the places that they would be, but just, you know, artistic sort of license was taken to put them all in there. I looked at that and went, I have to see all of that. And I remember in the, in the 90s when I first went there i think i first went there in 1993 i went to new york i remember coming up out of the uh the subway station on 34th street and just looking up at these buildings and you'd almost want to cry because as a child this was all you ever wanted to see in your life you want that because that was the time when there was no ryanair there was no norwegian there was no like you know the airline tickets cost money and i don't know if you remember back at the time quinsworth were doing the thing where if you show you got your weekly shop there you could collect these tickets uh, or to collect these vouchers and get half price tickets so me and a friend we went over there to visit another friend who was living there and to see that and to think Jesus, this, I'm finally seeing a part of the world. But before that, I'd lived in Greece for three or four months, just working a summer season on an island there. Again, the fascination with islands. And I also remember being a kid and reading about Iceland. And it was that was just absolutely fascinating because here were these people in the most inhospitable place in the world. You know, it's somewhere between Europe and America. And yet, you know, 330,000 of them somehow chose to stay there. And the first time I went to Iceland, I can't remember if it was 2007, I think it was, 2007, just before the crash, I remember landing in Keflavik Airport there and looking down, and it was like landed on the moon because it's a volcanic rock, essentially, is what Iceland is. It's just this flat black lava. And then the, the bus journey from Keflavik into Reykjavik, which is the capital of Iceland, is just amazing. I remember sitting there listening to the, mu the music of an Icelandic band called Sigur Rós and thinking, ah, oh, this is the shit. Like, you know, this is, you know, if you want to see the world, to, to, to fulfill a childhood dream of seeing a place like that. Now, I still want to see New Zealand and Australia and places like that that I haven't been to. I've been to South Korea. I was disgusted when the Olympics in, in Japan was cancelled because uh, that was, I was booked to go to Tokyo to see that. But I, like, I'm not greedy about it. If I, like, you know, if I don't get to see them, you know, the privilege I've had to go to places, I've covered a World Cup in Brazil. Can you imagine what that means to somebody like me who loved football, who loved sports as a kid, to be in Brazil 
Brazil when a World Cup was going on. To watch that with Brazilian people on a big screen in a town called Recife, or a city called Recife, to, to see their passion for this, to see how consumed they were by this thing for a whole summer, their devastation when they were beaten by Germany, just to experience that cheek by jowl with these wonderful people. It's just been such a privilege. And then to travel to, like, you know, we used to think about, you know, when I was growing up, Muhammad Ali was the, the, the big heavyweight boxer. Heavyweight boxing was a huge thing, a huge thing in Sweden as well. Mike Tyson after that. Well, we used to look at like the MGM Grand in Las Vegas and Madison Square Garden. And to sit there, as I have been privileged to do at ringside and watch Floyd Mayweather box or to watch Conor McGregor fight in these places, it's just absolute. Because Madison Square Garden, so it, everybody knows where it is. It doesn't matter if you like music or boxing or whatever happens to be. Everybody knows it. And you're sitting there. And not only that, you don't even have to pay for the ticket. You're on press row watching these things you get to talk to the fighters afterwards i've been in the like in the locker room with kobe bryant lord rest him you know in, in his farewell tour he, you know he torched the golden state warriors in a game i saw on a sunday lunchtime and uh, i actually interviewed him in los angeles about 10 days before he died and you know so it's, it's not really it's not just the travel fair it's that thing of to get to experience the things that i yeah. have been privileged to do you know jesus who am I to moan about absolutely anything? Okay, you know, the Olympics got wiped out, but fucking poor me. Do you know what I mean? There's so many of these things already in the bank that I just can't complain. I know. And when you're in that situation, say, like the Conor McGregor, was that the, was that the, fight, the boxing fight they had together or was that yeah, MMA? Yeah. I, co- I covered Connor's fight against Floyd Mayweather there uh, in Las Vegas. So that whole circus that was there. I covered a lot of Connor's fights because I kind of recognized reasonably quickly when he was coming up that this, A, that the sport was growing and that it also reached an audience that we tend to ignore as journalists and sports journalists. Because we look at MMA, it's not a sport, human cockfighting, yada, yada. And again, why? I wanted to understand why people watch. So I actually, at the age of four, I started doing these things myself. I went back to martial arts. I'd done martial arts in Dublin. And but I actually saw the very first UFC card on video and I turned it off after about five minutes. I thought, this is shit. This is just rubbish. And But then it had grown into this huge thing. So I wanted to understand why. But part of that thing of going over there, it's also to tell the stories around that. So I remember talking to a woman in the MGM Grand, actually, um, sorry, her husband was a Polish man. She was an African-American woman. She was married to a Polish man. And he worked as a shuttle bus driver for the MGM Grand. And she was telling me how much she loved when Connor fought in Las Vegas because her husband used to get tips out the door. So the Irish lads on the J1 visas are coming over from, from Crumlin and from Clondalkin and from Galway and from Kerry. They were, they were so happy to see somebody, so happy to talk to a hardworking man that they give him 10, 15, 20, $50 for driving them from the airport just to the MGM Grand. And then they'd watch Connor's way in and they do this thing. So just those things to be able to see and to be able to tell those stories in turn but yeah i've seen connor fight in new york i've seen him fight in las vegas i, I covered nba games in boston i was a what huge basketball the conor mcgregor like what's it actually like because i've never been at an mma or a boxing match actually yeah. what's it like being there like is it is it as violent as it looks like on tv uh, it, it, it is but the, the one thing you have to remember fergal is that nobody puts a gun to their head and forces them to go in there right mm-hmm. so when i take part i've competed in my late 40s i've competed in brazilian jiu-jitsu which is a grappling art right so basically i'm trying to get you to submit i'm trying to get you to you know either choke you into unconsciousness but usually you'll just tap me beforehand you say and that's your way of saying right that's game over connor's done it twice in professional fights and when you first sit down i used to go to watch boxing in the national stadium but i'll never forget watching the first amateur fights because when you hear that leather hitting the head guard mm-hmm. and the, the absolute worst is when you see a body shot when you see a fella getting crumpled by a body shot right a punch to the liver essentially and going down 
you know, that, that's difficult to watch. But then you realize that the skill in this, I remember talking to Steve Collins, the former super middleweight champion of the world. I interviewed him years ago in London. Uh, and I remember Steve saying, you know, I was saying, are you ever afraid getting into the ring? And he's going, look, the idea of being a professional boxer is to get hit as little as possible. And if you get hit a lot and you get hurt a lot, you're not going to be in this game for very long. So Connor and Floyd Mayweather and all these great fighters that I've seen, you know, Nate Diaz, Amanda Nunes, all these great fighters I've seen through the years, it is violent. But does the level of skill that they bring in there so that they don't get and they do get damaged i've seen people get their noses broken i've seen people choked into unconsciousness uh, i've seen bad things happen, but it's usually superficial and when it's over it's over you know there was one incident there where connor fought, fought uh, a russian fighter called khabib Nurmagomedov who retired at the weekend and there was a brawl afterwards and fans were fighting everything else. now that was the exception that was the only time that i've ever been there when it's really gone overboard there was no sportsmanship afterward there was no shake of the hand connor absolutely he really went for khabib in the run-up to the fight and he created a bad blood and Khabib couldn't let it go you know so at the end of it you know he threw his mouthpiece at one of Connor's uh, corner men and it just all kicked off from there you know so it is very visceral but for the most part it is a sport built on respect because you couldn't have it any other way you know it, it's the opposite of savagery you know you're going in there in a very controlled environment to do a very specific set of things to beat the other person but I still there's still this tiny tiny little part of me is going is this okay like my uncle actually was a boxing coach for the Irish team and he actually coached Billy Walsh. Oh, there and, you go. Yeah. And, but he's the most gentle man that you could ever meet. So I always grew up, you know, realizing that because you couldn't meet a gentler person, you know. Yeah. You've done a lot of uh, sports events and um, ones I'm really interested in because I haven't met anybody who has been to them is uh, Winter Olympics. Oh, man. They are just like, I don't know what it is. You know the way, when you grow up, we had Ski Sunday on the TV when we were growing yeah. up, and you can probably hear the team tune in your head now exactly. as we're saying it, right? Yeah. But I, I, like, I was offered the chance to go to the Winter Olympics in Sochi, I think was the first one, which would have been in 2014 in Russia. And again, give me travel, give me experiences, give me places where there's people, particularly athletes that I can talk to and find stories to tell. And I'll go, and I do not care what sport it is, right? If it's curling, I wouldn't watch curling on the TV, but by jeez, I'll go there and i give it my best shot. So I went to Sochi in 2014, and I got the chance to cover snowboarding and freestyle skiing, right? So I'm very young, sort of hip sports. I was about 41 at the time, you know, middle-aged man coming to do this. And <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant to come through Moscow to Sochi to see what they'd done. They just built this resort out of nowhere for the Olympics, to see the Russian people really warming to this, to see these young kids doing the most amazing things. And for the most part, freestyle skiing and snowboarding are not really competitive in the sense that it's not like watching a Premier League soccer match where the two sides will do absolutely anything to win. They re winning to them is secondary. It's the performance. It's doing something cool, something that's never been seen before. So there's a thing you can do on a snowball uh, on a snowboard called a triple cork, right? And a triple cork is basically three 360-degree turns on a snowboard, right? Nobody had ever done that in the Olympics before, and everybody wanted to do it. And to see everybody trying this thing, you know, it was just, to me, it was so much a part of the Olympic ideal. You know, it was higher, faster, stronger. It was exactly that. It was also the first chance that I got to go to Asia when I went to Pyeongchang. And I kind of thought that, oh, this is great. They're sending me to Pyeongchang now. I'll do more freestyle skiing and snowboarding. And they went, no, because I speak Swedish and I understand Norwegian. So they went, okay, you're going to cross-country skiing. And that was even better because what? the people that I live with around here, my neighbors, my friends, my in-laws, would be huge fans of that, right? And that meant that I was going to have an audience that would see the stuff that I was doing coming out of there. But the fascinating thing is that when they put me up there, now we had less, like everything else in the media, we had less people covering it. So there's more to do. You don't have to do the straight, oh, this person beat this person at this time. That's important, but it's not as important 
is telling people again we're back to the why right so one of the things that can go seriously wrong in cross-country skiing is the wax on your skis right so you wax skis uh, cross-country skis to make it faster across the snow right but the wax changes depending on the temperature depending on the type of snow and you know the temperature can change in the middle of a long race a 50k race it can change so can the snow it can start to melt if the sun comes up so that's a science in itself so you know i was doing stories about all these things and you know the biathlon there's a tremendous French biathlete called Martin Foucault, who's since retired. He retired after last season. And to see these guys, you know, getting their pulse up, pounded away, pounded away across the racing part of it, and then trying to get their heart rate down so they could shoot five shots without penalty, you know, the, the drama of it was just incredible. Ski jumping, all these things. And at the same time, the Olympics in itself, and particularly the Winter Olympics, is an amazing feat of logistics because there are thousands of competitors, thousands of journalists, media workers, broadcasters, athletes, coaches, relatives, friends, fans. They all have to move. And it could be, you know, could be 50 miles from, you know, the Alpine place to where the cross country is. So you literally, I wrote so many stories on the back of buses in Pyeongchang and there seems to be a culture, Fergal. It's one of the things I never really got to the bottom of, right? But there seems to be a culture in South Korea where a Friday night out or a Saturday night out, you hire a bus and you get a load of gargle and there's karaoke machines on it, right? So you get on these buses that are sort of, you know, booked for, you know, whatever coach you might book in Ireland, but there's all sorts of tassels and disco lights and big screens on them for people. And you're sitting there writing your stories and you're I don't know, it was just weird, you know? As a punter, would you recommend it to go to, or is it awkward getting around or is it cold standing outside? Or? We, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend going to, I think it is, it's very, very well set up. Like, you know, the whole, the whole thing is very well set up ju- just to be there. And it is cold, right? So uh, at the opening ceremony of the Olympics in Pyeongchang, my computer gave up. It was so cold. We were sitting outdoors and it was minus 24, I think was the coldest it got. For that experience, if you can do that and you can bring your little flask of, you know, mulled wine or coffee or whatever else it is with you, you know, to stand there to watch that because the level of sport is amazing. I remember seeing there's a competition called aerials, which is basically people doing, you know, it's like, it's like the ski jump, but just with a couple of twists and turns thrown in. And I saw a woman from Brazil doing it and her, her life goal was to do that, you know, and she just came down. She just did a simple backflip and she did it. She competed in the Olympics that was it and that to me said almost as much as the person who won the gold medal you know was I can remember I can't even remember her name I know she was from Belarus you know um but it was like it was just incredible to see people because it's not just the people who make it on there there was a Mexican man who'd been skiing uh, he qualified for the 50k cross-country race in the Olympics by going to all the tournaments that none of the big skiers went to so he'd come you know in 25th place and that'd be enough to get him to the Olympics but that was his dream and he had the money and the drive to do it and he was telling me about being in you know in Aspen Colorado and there was only him and some bloke from Lebanon who also made it to the Olympics who were doing these things. So I definitely recommend it. And Olympic athletes tend to be very humble. They tend to be the sort of people. Now, obviously, you're not going to run into a same bolt because he's just huge. But you run into people on the street. There's a brilliant, brilliant culture. And I'll send you a link because I always do a story about it of people swapping badges. So every news agency, every brand, every sponsor, every Olympic team, they make these badges. And you get maybe 10 or 20 of them off whoever brings you to the Olympics. And you swap them with other people then. And I still have them, you know. And it's just the stories behind them. And some people have hundreds of them. And they only go there to swap the badges and to tell stories. And that, again, that social aspect of it, that sense of community. Like walking to Crow Park on a Sunday, the minutes that you have with those people might be the only time you ever meet them, but they'll tell you a story and they're the stories that we can bring on and tell other people. Yeah, you'll never forget that. Um, So my last question, first, I want to thank you so much. This has been an amazing chat. I have to say I've enjoyed it so much. My pleasure. And my last question is that I ask everybody is if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths, allow yourself to think of your happy place from your travels. And where would that be? I think 
this is the most difficult question that that you've put to me. And I think when I do that, the place doesn't matter. I'll tell you where the place is. It's around a table. That table can be absolutely anywhere. And it's with my family. Because I in in chasing my own dreams and in being essentially selfish and doing what I've done, Fergal, I've had you know, my family has had to sacrifice a lot to allow me to go there. Now, sure, I make money, but I could make money driving a bus. That's not the thing. They've allowed me to do this. And the absolute best thing is when my wife and myself and my two children can sit around the table. And when, you know, this you know, Christmas dinner is brilliant. You know, we celebrated Christmas in our own house for the first time about two or three years ago. I remember thinking, I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to be, I don't have to do anything today. I can just be, and I could just be with them. And that was probably the happiest moment of my life uh you know just to be there with them you know your kids are old enough to be able to you know eat with a knife and fork in the right hand and you know you don't have to hoover after them, this kind of thing you know and it was just one of those those two or three hours over that day was just fantastic so that's where it is whether that happens to be in dublin that'd be one of the places stockholm would be another norway in that little house that we bought now but to be honest all of these places because the, the one thing that I think of now as I get older, that every place I leave, like I left Los Angeles and I left Las Vegas in January, I might never see them again. I might never see New York again. I might never see Seoul or Pyeongchang. I might never see Melbourne at all, you know. So sometime when I leave these places now, you know, as, as life goes on, it's going to be the last time I ever see any of it. But I can always cling to that hope that somewhere there'll be a table and there'll be four people sitting around it that I love and that I want to be with and that I would travel the whole world to be with at certain times. So that would, is the happy place for me. Where you want to put that table, that's up to you, my friend. Thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. We have some great expat tales coming up over the next few weeks. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergal.